Okay. Would you like to share something with us this morning, Gurmarch? Um, well, one thing new is that um, we have a new website for my uh, discourse. It's swami.org. So if you go to swami.org, you will see a whole new site with all of my talks. It's very well organized, very nicely done uh, by Gurunishtan Vrindaranya. Harijan Das, I know, was very involved in that. Um, perhaps some others as well. Um, much appreciated. And that replaces the previous uh, site. It was called Shabda Brahman. Um, which was done um, earlier by some other devotees. So it is there, and if there's anything that you find, any of you, that uh, is problematic, then you can let uh, Gurunishta know in this uh, interim period, and we'll adjust it. But it is live, so I'm very happy, very pleased with it. I hope you will be as well. That's the new development, and otherwise, have been busy. Uh, we received 128 bales of hay recently, and we've been stacking them the last few days. It's been good exercise. Today should be the last day, but um, all's well here at Audaria. And in Madhuvan as well, also. So let's go ahead and take the questions. Okay, sounds good. So the first question is from Braj Sundari. This was actually for last week, but I missed it. So here we go. Braj says, In Jaiva Dharma, in the chapter called Prameya Shakti Tattva, Bhaktivinoda Thakur writes that Chit Shakti, Jiva Shakti, and Maya Shakti are three aspects of Sarup Shakti and Harini, Samit, and Sandini are three manifestations of Sarup Shakti. And that these three manifestations act on the three aspects. Perhaps it is my problem with understanding it in, understanding it in English, but could you explain it more, please? Well, Bhakti Minotaku's statement there is based on Svetashvatara Upanishad, Parascha Shakti Vibhidai Vishwayate. That um, basically means that the God has Shakti that manifests in multifarious ways. He's imbued with Shakti. Um, and so if we look at the personification of the Shakti, for example, the primal Godhead is Krishna and the primal uh, he's the Shakti Man, and then the Shakti that uh, corresponds with him in the primal position is, is Radha. Mm-hmm. So all the Shaktis come, in a sense, from from the primal Shakti. One could look at it like that. Um, and so, for example, you know, excuse me, we have. Uh, Durga is a name for Radha, and Durga is also a name for the Maya Shakti. All of the um, the goddesses, if you will, um, 
um, have a Saraswati, uh, Durga, and so on. They all have a material manifestation and a spiritual manifestation. So I'm giving this as an example, but which you can see that the from the primal Shakti, Radha, we also have the Maya Shakti is manifesting, the diversification of it in, in Bhakti Vinotapur's uh, perspective. Um, and, and then there's the... Uh, uh, and so she's a personification in the full sense of the Swarup Shakti. And um, now that said, of course, the Jiva Shakti is a little different because the Jiva Shakti is really a Vibhinamsa or partial, separated, Vibhinamsa means separated, an atomic manifestation of the, of the Godhead. It's manifest by the, by the, by the, um, Tatasta Shakti, um, and sometimes it's force referred to as Tatasta Shakti. But at any rate, what Bhaktivinoda Thakur is saying there, is that this this original Shakti, this Rup Shakti, that is constituted of Sandini, which means an existential feature, Samvit, cognitive feature, and uh, and um, Ladini, a um, experiential uh, and um, well experiential feature. Um, Experience could be good or bad as it manifests in the spiritual world, its union and separation. Um, but, uh, it's all ananda. So when we take those three, Sambit, excuse me, Sandini, uh, Sambit, and Ladini, these are the three aspects of the Sarup Shakti. Now, when that Sarup Shakti or original primal Shakti, is manifest as the Tatasta Shakti, the Jiva, then the Jiva is constituted of Sat, Chit, and Ananda. Sat means existential, Chit means cognitive, and Ananda means experiential. Um, and, and, and by its nature, then, uh, its experience is joyful. So Ananda. So Sat, Chit, and Ananda are atomic if you will, or partial manifestations of the existential, cognitive, and experiential features of the Sarup Shakti, Sandini, Sambit, Ladini. So you have the partial manifestation of them, and then you have the distorted manifestation of them, which is the Maya Shakti, which is Asat, Ajit, and Nirananda. So um, this way he's tracing out, if you will, um, this idea from the Sveteshvatara Upanishad that there's from one Shakti, so many Shaktis come um, by way of speaking about the kind of the three principal Shaktis, um, Srupa Shakti, Maya Shakti, and Jiva Shakti, in terms of um, their commonality, if you will. Uh, so, uh, again, to put it in, in further in English terms, Sarup Shakti uh, is uh, existential. 
So there's realms that correspond with it. Um, and they're eternal. Maya Shakti, by contrast, is um, asat or asandini. <laughs> Sat means existence and so does sandini. So asat means there are realms existential, but they're here today, they're gone tomorrow, right? The cognitive feature of of the that inner spiritual world, that that knowing when it's that shakti is manifest as the Maya Shakti, it's as achit. So there's unknowing here. Right? Avidya is the basis of the, uh, the material existence causes avidya. Uh, at the root, un- ignorance, unknowing, and in the internal spiritual world, if you will, realm, you have um, joy, ladini. In the material world, we have suffering, nirananda, and in between these two, then we can go from one side to the other. Is the is the jiva shakti, and it's atomic. In its uh, in its capacity, in its existence, in its in its uh, cognizance, and in its joy, um, so it's sat chit ananda. We would say that I have said before, sandini, ladini, and sambit is like sat chit ananda on on steroids, if you will. Um, so that is what Bhakti Thakur is uh, stating. That verse from Sreteshvatar Upanishad says further, it says, Parasya Shakti Vividai Bhushviyate Svabhavika Jnana Bala Kriya Cha Svabhavika Jnana Bala Kriya Jnana Bala Kriya These three um, can also be identified with um, with Sambit Ladini and, and Sandini. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much. Um, The next question is from Krishna Kanaya. She couldn't be on the call today, but she sent a question in. She says, Dandavat pronounced, dear Guru Maharaj. In the Bible, humans are asked to be good stewards of earth, of the earth. Is there a similar mention in the Vedic literature that we are protectors, caretakers of our environment? What is our ideal relationship to Mother Bhumi? We are always takers, aren't we? Well, we are takers in a conditioned life, material conditioned life. Um, we're exploiting the world um, because of identification with the microcosm of it, which is our body-mind complex. And that identification causes us to feel um, unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. And so we reach out to the material nature and try to acquire to um, overcome the sense of lack of fulfillment by adding things to ourselves. Of course, that's um, counterproductive. And by taking, we end up with less, right? We owe, we, we owe more. And so the idea in the uh, Vedic text is to turn inward, right? To find oneself, the fullness of oneself in relation to matter and 
in consideration of our connection as eternal servants of Bhagwan, where the full sense of our fulfillment is found, right? Um, and so in conditioned life, yes, we we're takers, but we're taught in the scripture that we're not meant to be takers, we're meant to be givers, right? Um, and so uh, by giving ourselves to Bhagavan in, in service, how do we do that? Well, uh, among other things, that those sensed objects that we are in touch with or the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we contact it and engage with the sense objects through our senses only for the pleasure of Krishna. Rishikena Rishikesha Sevan Bhakti Ruchate, as Nard says. Bhakti is using the our senses for the service of Krishna's senses. Now we use those senses of ours, how? In relation to sense objects. So the whole idea within bhakti, within the the, the idea that, uh, that we should, um, with our body, mind, and uh, self, serve Bhagwan, is included, as I'm explaining it, the idea that we shouldn't take from the world simply for the sake of our body and mind, hmm? but we should take only as much as is necessary to maintain the body and mind as it is uh, fully engaged in Bhagwan's service. So, um, so I don't think it's said uh, in any particular verse that, that the humans are the caretakers of nature, but it's it's given in, within that understanding. We shouldn't be taking, exploiting material nature, but um, seeing it as one of the shaktis of Bhagavan and connecting it with him through a service to Bhagavan and thereby uh, spiritualizing, in a, in a sense, um, the world, treading lightly on it, um, the whole idea of uh, taking from the world is uh, is thought to be objectionable um, um, and allowed, if you will, uh, only within the limits of, as I say, what is necessary for preserving the body and mind in the service of Bhagwan. So it's it's a given. It's packed in there, built into the whole concept that we should. Um, that humans are the stewards of of uh, of nature. The uh, you know there's the doctrine of ahimsa, nonviolence. Um, I was asked the other day about what to pray. I think by Gayatri, when we wake up, I gave the prayer for waking up in the morning that I should not step on. I pray that I my steps on the earth will only be in the service of Bhagwan and so forth. So. Uh, and you see this practically, um, historically speaking, uh, that um, w- while in Europe, uh, Descartes famously distinguished um, humans um, in his mind from the rest of nature, including all of its creatures, um, by the idea that, well, I think, 
in other words, you know, I think what he meant is I'm cognitive of my existence in a way that he thought animals, trees, and so on, and plants and whatnot were not, and therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. And in thinking along these lines, he kind of identified humans as 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 conscious beings and the rest of nature beings and all included being unconscious and um, soulless much of the soul is consciousness though they didn't have a soul of course he, he conflated mind with 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 soul with atma if you will if, if you want to use atma as a translation for soul uh, soul is kind of a english word that uh, is not very well defined in the bible at all um it was later only through the uh, uh, platonic plato and aristotle two different conceptions of the soul were developed for example within catholicism so you're not going to draw it from the bible itself um I say in this regard that do you believe in the soul? I, I say, do you believe in consciousness? It's kind of the latter is kind of a silly question. So ours is that we define consciousness. Everybody believes in consciousness. We define it in a particular way, and for good reason. Um, but um, but um, somehow I got there with regard to the the, the question. But were we still on the question about nature and exploit? Yeah, exploit. So I was saying historically. So historically speaking, in Europe, um, this insight of Descartes, which was loomed rather large, uh, was the beginning really of the environmental crisis that we experience in the world today. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the church then, uh, if you will, gave a license to the pillaging of nature, which previously was thought to be sacred. It took the sacred out of nature. So the shamans and other uh, uh, religious pagan sects, the sects, they all worshipped nature in some way or another, posited gods and goddesses, fairies, or whatever may be the case. But it was a, um, a culture that, comparatively speaking, comparatively to what happened in Europe with the Industrial Revolution, Scientific Revolution, which was all blessed by the church at at the beginning, although later now it's become the the nemesis of the church, but it was blessed by the church um, to rape and pillage the world, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, this didn't happen, and this was all biblical, you know, uh, was thought, but this didn't happen in India, where it was also thought that um, humans were the the vehicle human life was the vehicle through which consciousness fully manifest but it but it didn't conclude the hindus didn't conclude the sanatanists <laughs> didn't conclude that animals didn't have souls that the consciousness was only you know manifested in humans and so forth and so it was a very deeply uh uh theistic and theologically rich uh, culture that at at the same time was rich in terms of its uh, sense of the world and uh, worshipful of the rivers of worship, the mountains of worship, 
the whole of the Varn Ashram is, is the positing of gods and goddesses behind every feature of nature and making them worshipable. So you worship the god, the goddess. Um, it's, it, it's this, this isn't separate by any means from worship of the river. And it's a kind of a worship means kind of a, in this sense, kind of a, uh, in the Varnashram sense, a, a gratefulness, grateful to the river. We're grateful to the wind. We're grateful to the sun because our senses, which are again the mic and mind, which are the microcosm of the macrocosm of the world, um, they're dependent in terms of their functioning on the macrocosm. So for me to see, we need light. We need light. Sun provides the light. Um, and so we show, you know, Surya Namaskar. We show gratitude to the sun as we rise in, in the morning and it rises. This is a very beautiful concept. And it was a worship of, of nature or a, a loving approach to nature, which I often say, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So nature tells its secret that it has a soul and it's you. That's what comes out of the Varnashram, which is a very worshipful uh, orientation towards nature hmm, that in its culmination, in its, in its real ultimate fruit, the, the, the Varnashram, the karma mark, brings one to Gyan, hmm, which is contemplative life and knowledge of and experience of the self. So if you approach nature properly, she shows you that she has a soul and it's you. And you, within all of the world, are the thing that most resembles God. So you're worshipful, worshipful as well as an atma, being, being consciousness like a God is. Of course, your worshipful object is, is, is the God himself, God himself as well. Um, so here you have, you know, a very pagan-like, if you want to use like the European term, uh, uh, orientation towards nature that at the same time is very theologically developed, hmm, in, not only in comparison to the pagan traditions of Europe, but also in comparison to Christianity. Hmm. It's a very much more complex and rich Theology, if you ask me, and I think it's objective, look at the, look at the theology, uh, and the philo, and the philosophy, hmm, of the, of the Bhagavatam compared to the theology and the philosophy of the Bible. I mean, to be generous, I would, I would say that the Bible is like, is like a partial manifestation of what's, um, being described theologically, um, the concept of, of God and, um, the Dharma of humanity, ultimately Nitya Dharma, to worship um, God through acts of devotion. This is uh, um, the Bible's kind of a, like a manifestation of bhakti in a different culture that uh, doesn't bring out as much of the richness that. Um, that the Bhagavatam does in terms of the various faces of the Godhead and the ultimate uh, fountainhead or the, the primal face of Bhagavan Sri Krishna. So, um, there's a lot to say in comparison to, to the one statement of the Bible that humans are stewards of, of nature in, in our um, question of culture. 
the idea there is well supported and, and, and more and reasoned about and, and so on and so forth. Um, the limited way in which this was thought about in Christianity has, has not been strong enough to push back, if you will. And um, therefore, there is an environmental crisis. And, and even many Christians today are part of the environmental crisis in their, in their thinking and, and in their actions. So what else? Another question. Grumash, I had a follow-up thought. You said something that really uh, kind of hit me in a new way. You were saying how, first of all, that the basis of Varnashram is gratitude, which I've never thought of it like that. In the West, we seem to see, we see, I mean, we uh, tend to see the so-called caste system in this very kind of harsh, negative light that it's this like oppressive, oppressive force that keeps people in these little boxes. But that idea that that it's actually all based on gra- uh, gratitude and the the structure is trying to teach people basically how to be grateful is like a very cool idea to me. And then a quick other thought that I had that really blew my mind too was that that you said that when somebody when you love somebody they'll tell you all their secrets. So there's a ton of all these new studies about gratitude and how gratitude enables you to like have this self. Um, knowledge and like self-understanding that is really hard to access otherwise and so i thought of it how even in the context of psychology that's true that when you kind of like love yourself or you have gratitude for life life actually shows itself even in the secular sense in this broader scope to you so it's like really relevant what you're saying like like it's hitting me like how universal it is very nice yes Anyway, the next question is from Gunjan Sharma. She says, Tandavat Pranam Maharaj, thank you so much for your kind mercy. How does one maintain a mood of being humble, yet not underperforming as per one's capacity? As sometimes acting in one's capacity may require leadership qualities. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur gave a famous lecture um, and it was entitled later, More Humble Than a Blade of Grass. He gave this lecture from his uh, asana on the day in which his appearance in the world was being celebrated by his disciples. And as such, there were many praises of him, uh, flowery words um, and gifts offered and so on and so forth. And so in the midst of this, he gave this famous lecture and he said, how does this correspond? Me sitting up here, accepting all this praise and honor with the mandate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Trinadapi Suni Chena, that one should be more humble grass. And of course, he went on to explain that I'm only sitting here because it's been asked of me, it's a service that I've been called upon to do. I'm accepting it, um, this honor on behalf of Bhagawan. And so he, anyway, he went on to give a, a dynamic understanding of um, humility. So humility before whom? Hmm? Should we be humble before the, the tiger, the Bengali tiger that's attacking us in the forest and just fold our hands? You know, we have to, should we be humble in a, in a, in a 
overt sense, if um, uh, Vaishnavas are uh, attacked or our guru is um, vilified, so you know, no, but yes, but 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 the shape or the form in which the humility expresses itself is dynamic, and it may look on the surface to be other than humility. But that's very much, um, but, but, but it, but is an expression of humility because it's humility for what? For who? Before whom? Humility, uh, before Bhagawan to do his bidding and his bidding may call upon Hanuman to, for example, to jump across, uh, you know, to Lanka and destroy the, 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 uh, the kingdom of Ravana and so forth. So where's the humility of Hanuman, right? So the humility is that, He's doing what Bhagavan wants. I mean, you can have humility independent in one sense of serving Bhagavan. Just like you can, you can you, um, if you want to um, give up the exploitation, the taking that we're speaking about earlier, well, you can stop taking. And that takes a certain shape, right? Mm-hmm. But you could also give in service to he whom the world belongs to, aspects of the world that I come in touch with. Hmm. Now, uh, uh, which is is more comprehensive in terms of overcoming this the the enjoying ego, hmm, the taking ego? Well, it's one thing to stop taking; it's another thing to, to serve, right? Uh, the, 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 that is is, is 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 much more to ask of us, and as such, it is much more comprehensive of, of an approach to converting or doing away with, I should say, doing away with the the enjoying ego. And Bhagavad Gita also said that humility is absence of the enjoying ego. Hmm. So that means the presence of the serving ego, the development of the, that I'm, I'm a servant. And a servant can, ex, can express himself or herself in any number of ways, ways of which I've just discussed, which are more directly, obviously, connected to devotional service. But as a householder, we may live in the world, we may have a job, for example, that requires us to, um, uh, you know, pre- present ourselves, push ourselves forward, some extent. Now, in this connection, my Guru Maharaj used to say that, you know, amongst the householders who are doctors, lawyers, or they may be politicians, or they may be a factory worker, or whatever may be the case, they should be the best at that in their in their field. Hmm? Um, and seeing their uh, proficiency in their particular field, they'll stand out amongst others and what will be the reason behind their that their their philosophical perspective, which then they can explain? So he wanted his disciples who had um, worldly responsibilities and desires and so forth, who weren't contemplatives, uh, to um, assert themselves in the world and be the best in in their field, um, so that the best doctors are the devotees of Krishna. <laughs> the best lawyers are you know, the most honest 
politicians are the ones who are actually devotees. So there's a strong sense uh, in our party bar of this with with regard to uh, how to convert worldliness, if you will, into um, otherworldliness. So it's a conceptual orientation. But if you can um, catch that, then you can be ferocious, even in the business uh, world, if you will. Another example, probably used to say, we are lambs at home and lions uh, in the, what do you say? Lambs at home, lions, uh, you know, in the world. He was talking about preaching. So a lion doesn't seem humble. A lamb seems very humble compared to at home, one thing. But in relation to the world, well, it is aggressive. We have to push back and so forth. Um, but our purpose has to be all um, um, ultimately for for Bhagavan. So as I said, I think I've said you know many times, the householder can serve um, in a minimal way by um, purifying their occupation, if you will, through uh, funding. Um, that comes from that um, funding uh, monetary remuneration that comes from that by by using such uh, uh, funds for Vaishnav purposes and so forth. So those are some thoughts on that. Hope it's helpful. Uh, Harijan has a follow-up on this one. And that's Guru Maharaj. Um, I, I just recently read something from Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and he says that there are two ways of, uh, like, direct approach and indirect. Like, direct is, like, positive glorification of devotion, and indirect is, like, opposition, I would say. And he says this this opposition creates, like, some unbalanced situation, but it's necessary to discern the truth. So my question is kind of like where to apply this like indirect indirect thing or where it is good time for it or where is where is not good time. What Bhaktisiddhanta Doc was talking about is, um, for example, how the Bhagavatam as a text works, how the Gita as a text works. If you look at these books carefully, you'll see what their central subject is: is Ananya Bhakti, Uttam Bhakti pure bhakti, unalloyed bhakti. That's what it's about. So sometimes it speaks directly about about the virtues of unalloyed bhakti. And sometimes these texts speak indirectly about the virtues of unalloyed bhakti by comparing them to other paths, karma yoga, gyan yoga, yoga mixed with with uh, with, uh, with bhakti, or as, as may be the case. Um, so when the Gita is, is speaking about different paths, it's really speaking about one path, either directly or indirectly. So we glorify Bhagavan and Bhakti directly, and we may glorify Bhagavan indirectly by um, speaking about the philosophical uh, problems with Advaita uh, Vedanta. Mm-hmm. Near Vishesh, uh, you, know, you find 
uh, Ramanuja, Madhva, you know, uh, Mahalava and so forth, one after another, uh, with these dissertations, text after text after text, refuting the idea that, that Bhagavan doesn't have an eternal form. This is indirectly glorifying. So that's what's, I think he's primarily being, he's probably speaking about. But it relates to, you know, the, the previous question and, 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 and answer as well. Does that help? Okay. Thank you. Okay, next question is from, uh, it's actually an anonymous, anonymous question. The person says, I heard from Shilanaraya Maharaj, no, I heard Shilanaraya Maharaj say that Kirtan without Madhyam, without a Madhyam Bhakta, with the connection to Swarup Shakti is like barking of dogs. How do you think about the statement? Well, I think that um, I wouldn't have put it like that, but um, there is uh, some truth to what he's saying that I would have put it differently. And that is that we should conduct kirtan under the auspices and with the blessings of a Vaishnav with real standing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is recommended uh, throughout. We may not have the standing of a, of a superior Vaishnav, but we should do kirtan under their auspices, which would mean that our kirtan will be uh, philosophically informed hmm, with proper sambandagyan, and therefore it will be fruitful. To the extent to which our kirtan is not informed by sambandagyan, we may, for example, be making namap, do namaparad. So in Bengal, during the time of Bhakti Siddhanta, Bhakti Vinod and Bhakti Siddhanta, um, Bhakti Vinodhaka was concerned that there were plenty of people doing kirtan, but they didn't have sambandagyan. Hmm? And therefore they were thinking, we'll do kir- Krishna kirtan today, tomorrow let's do Kali kirtan, hmm? you know, and, and so forth and so on. So there's a, there is a, without the sambandagyan, there's a, without knowing, for example, the 10 offenses, then they're, they're susceptible to that, and then they won't make progress. Hmm? Um, so it's it's an offense to think that the name of Kali, for example, is equal to the name of Krishna in, in terms of uh, kirtan. And neither does Kali ask for kirtan. Kali doesn't say, whoever chants my name, Krishna says that. Machita matkata prana, right? Katayantaschamamityam, statements like this. Krishna is the advocate, advocate, Vishnu of Kirtan is a limb of bhakti. Anyway, it's not for Shiva. It's not for, uh, uh, well, Shiva, maybe, perhaps, yes, but it's not for Brahma. It's not for Indra. It's not for uh, Chandra, Kali, and so forth. Um, you, you could do, but anyway, um, and to think they're the same is, is, is an offense. So the, when the Sambandagyan is lacking, which would be the Siksha coming from the connection with real devotees, and what I mean by their chanting under their uh, uh, auspices, under their you know direction, that kind of kirtan, that would be fruitful. 
kirtan outside of that <clears throat> may not be or will not be to the same extent. Um, um, Sridhamarsh, Pujapat Sridhamarsh used to say, well, you know, if we don't receive the mantra from a pro- proper guru, then it's like, uh, like firing blanks, hmm? shooting a gun that uh, only has blanks, something like that. Um, because, uh, uh, to take it a, a, a little further, one of the namaparads, another one is, is to disobey the guru or to avoid the guru, to disrespect the guru. So if we don't have a proper guru who we're uh, under whose blessing, with whose blessing we're, we're chanting the name, then arguably we're committing that offense. And so by Nam Aparad, how will you make progress? That's how I would say that this is what Narayan Marsh is talking about. <laughs> Hope that's helpful. Thank you very much. Uh, next question is from Gayatri. Hi, Krishna Gurmash. Yes. So the other day I was speaking with a Gaudiya Vaishnav whom I consider well-versed in the scriptures. And he said that on the scale of loving relationships with Krishna, Vatsalya is higher than Sakya. Maybe I've misunderstood and this is correct, but I want to check with you, is this correct? And if not, why is it that people within the same lineage have different conceptions of these things? Yes, there's a way to argue for both. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the more prominent idea is that um, because the essence, essential characteristics of Shantarasa are also present in Dasya, plus something more, Dasya is superior to Shanta. And because the characteristics of Dasya are present in Sakya, along with something more. Therefore, Sakya is, is more developed, if you will, or has that brings one in more in touch with Bhagawan than Dasya. And because the ingredients of Sakya are present in Vatsalya, plus something more, Vatsalya offers more intimacy and then to Madhurya. This is the general uh, way in which it's um, described. And Rupa Goswami describes it like this um, in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Um, he gives also the example of um, you have earth, water, fire, air, ether. In ether, you have sound. But in air, you have sound and touch. In fire, you have sound, touch, and sight, because you can see the fire. In water, you have sound, touch, sight, and taste. 
And in earth, you have sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell. So also, earth is 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 more more full. He gives this kind of example. Now that doesn't mean that in Madhurya Rasa would be the earth in this comparison, and Shantarasa would be the ether, right? The other end of the other end of the spectrum, right? But because that doesn't mean that one who has Madhurya Rasa has all the other Rasas, but it has aspects of the other Rasas, but it's its own Rasa, it's its own self. Not that someone in Madhurya Rasa has all the Rasas. So anyway, that's an interesting point as an aside. So this is the typical explanation, and the, the, the Vaishnava you're referring to has probably given that. However, that said, in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, in his uh, chapter, on Sakirasa, Rupa Goswami says at the end that there's also uh, a case to be made for Sakya being superior to Vatsalya, Dasya, and Shanta. Right? And he says that the, the reason for this is that in Shanta, in Sakirasa, unlike Vatsalya, and unlike Dasya and Shanta, the the basis of this rasa is equality between Bhagawan and the devotee. So how the Bhagawan feels towards the devotee and how the devotee feels towards Bhagawan, they are the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not the case in Batsalya. How Mother Yasoda feels towards Krishna is not the way he feels towards her, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's some difference there, right? Which gets in the way of union, right? The likeness, the sameness, the, the something like that. Uh, similarly in Dasya, the Dasya devotee feels one way towards Bhagavan and Bhagavan feels another way. To, I mean, it's love. Both ways are expressions of love, but there's a difference. You can think of it yourself. How you will feel towards your children will be one thing. It'll be different than how they feel towards you. Whereas how you feel towards your close friends and you, it's the same. They feel towards you just like you feel towards them. So because this is a, a central quality of Sakya, some reason that Sakya is superior um, uh, to Vatsalya. To now, when we say superior, of course, they're all perfect. So uh, we shouldn't have a mundane conception. One is better than the other necessarily what best Chaitanya Charitamrita says is what's best for you for each devotee hmm. he gives the subjective he says well we can make a case that objectively speaking Madhuriya affords more intimacy still the best rasa is the one that each devotee feels themselves right hmm. so now while there's a case that can be made for the superiority of Sakya over Batsalya or vice versa, if we go to from Rupa Goswami to Jiva Goswami, hmm, Jiva Goswami's book that kind of parallels Rupa Goswami's Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is his Bhakti Sandarbha, his treatise Sandarbha on Bhakti, right? Which is what Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is. And Jiva Goswami wrote, of course, a commentary on Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. That's very important. But in his Bhakti Sandarbha, while describing the gradation, if you will, of different rasas, Jiva Goswami holds that Sakya Rasa is superior 
to Vatsal um, Rasa. And he is thought to be in Madhuri Rasa, in Manjari Bhav, but he worshipped Krishna Balaram as a child. Hmm. It seems to have stuck with him. So, so you can find amongst all the Goswamis and commentators in, who are in Manjari Bhav or thought to be in Manjari Bhav, um, in, Rupa Gos- in Rupa Goswami, you can find repeatedly statements of affinity also for, for the Sakya Rasa. In fact, he goes so far as to say that the Kantabhav, the Madhurya Rasa hmm, in Braj is mixed with Sakya. Hmm. This is his own statement, is mixed with Sakya. So he has some affinity for Sakya on that, on that basis. And of course, in the Braj Leela, it's the Madhurya Rasa and the Sakya Rasa that is more, um, uh, much more closely related to, affiliated with, involved in the romantic life of Krishna, which is the essence of Braj. How much is this Vatsalya Rasa involved in the romantic life of Krishna? It serves as opposition to the romantic life, although they would all like Krishna to marry Radha. They have to follow the Dharma, and according to his astrological chart, this is not going to be good because he's going to be gone when he's, you know, just a young, just becoming an adolescent and, and leave the village. Then he has another, another, he has a date with Dharma, right? To defeat the demons. So how can he marry the gopis and run? They have to have somebody here. They have to have a coward villager. So, so, <clears throat> although Vatsali would also, uh, Radharani, Yasoda wants Krishna to marry Radharani. Still, she can't allow that, right? So they serve as opposition, which, which, indirectly is facilitating the parakia, of course. But the but this but in Sakiras you can there's a direct amongst the Narmasakas, for example, in the romantic life. And so here you have within Sakiras there are divisions, there are different types of Sakirasa. So when you look at the Priyanarmasaka, then then this this class of Sakiras devotees definitely uh, even even Drupa Goswami will, will, will wholly agree if, if affords greater intimacy with with um, with uh, with Bhagwan than than Vatsalya therefore it exceeds in excellence the um, Vatsalya which goes up to um, in that there's a gradation Sneha Man, Pranay, Rag, Anurag. So what's all you go up to Rag, but this Narmasakabab goes up to Anurag, Mahabhav also. So these are not the features, these two of what's all you So there's a, there's a, there's a you, you, devotee who spoke it is, he has the general idea, and that is the general, uh, but if you look a little deeper, uh, there's a case that can be made for the superiority of, of Saki in general. And without a doubt, it's, it, there, there cannot be any, um, any, uh, you say, um, disagreement if you study it carefully. The Narmasaka's Sakyabhav is, is more rich if you will, 
affords greater intimacy with Bhagavan than Batsalya. So, you know, not everybody is as is well well studied in, 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 in the subject matters. I mean, what he has said or she has said is, is, is a general teaching. Now you know how to raise your hand and say, yes, but you have to listen to this a few times. But, okay. Yes, I will have to listen a few times. <laughs> Thank you, Gormaj. Okay. Nice question. Okay, the next question is from Krishna Sevaka Prabhu. Please accept my obeisances, Guru Maharaj. Um, my question is a little convoluted, so I, please bear with me. I'll try to keep it short. Um, I've experienced glimpses, uh, a chinta beta beta tattva, where there's the oneness and the separation with Krishna. Glimpses. <laughs> um, but I don't understand why he he wants me he's reached it feels to me like he's reached to me from his world to my world here here originally through through the devotees and sangha and all that and yet i have um i'm in separation from him and i i don't know why he wants me about, about everybody that that he has already in his life why would he want me in his life i don't I mean, I'm grateful and everything, but I just, I don't understand why. <laughs> Krishna, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, it wears the kastuba mani. The chitmani means jewels. It, it's, I don't know how you would uh, translate. I think some people translate it into lapis. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's a, there's a kastuba mani. And, and, and this jewel, the Bhagavatam tells, this jewel um, represents all jivas. He's wearing it around his neck. So all the jivas are dear to Bhagawan. They are all partial manifestations of himself. And when they are connected with him through bhakti, then through the, the, the bodies that they that correspond with that, the spiritual bodies which have senses, then Krishna plays out that much further his unlimited desire to enjoying capacity through the senses of that devotee in the in in the Leela. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, they serve as potential further instruments, if you will, through which Bhagwan's unlimited capacity to taste rasa can be experienced. He's, he, his preem is full, but the nature of that preem is that it's ever increasing. So we, as potential devotees, rightfully understood, we are the servants of Bhagwan. We are the servants of Krishna. When that is realized, then through through our senses, Bhagavan is experiencing, is facilitated, I should say, um, in terms of his unlimited enjoying uh, capacity. So that's one way 
um, you know, to look at it, if you will. But again, um, if you just take the idea that uh, the jivas manifest from the paramatma, so they are, uh, you know, he is their maker, so they, they are seeking to meet the maker. And he, he, look at it like this, the paramatma manifests the jivas. Why? It's just out of joy. The world, there is such thing as the Maya Shakti. There is a such thing as the Jiva Shakti. They're aspects of Bhagwan. His Shaktis. Paramatma manifests the Maya Shakti and the Jiva Shakti for the purpose of interacting with the Jivas who are inherent within him. He manifests them just like Krishna manifests as Radha. Why? To interact with her, by which his ecstasy, his 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 ananda can be increased. In other words, if you have sugar, it's sweet, right? But it can't taste itself. So so Bhagavan is sweet, but he can't taste himself as fully. But he, so he manifests that his sweetness externally and interacts with the sweetness. That is the relationship between Radha and Krishna, Chinta Beta Beta. She's one with him and different from him. So on another level, the Paramatma manifests the Jivas and, and the Maya Shakti as well for the purpose of interacting with them. Of course, the problem is they're small, and the Maya Shakti is big collectively, and so it covers them. So he has to avatar, he has to descend to sort them out, bring them out, excavate them from their predicament, and so forth. This is his his love for them. He manifests bhakti in the world by, by manifesting devotees, and so on and so forth. This is the idea. So he cares about uh, the jivas. He manifests them to, to, to really to, to, to for joy, and, and there's joy for the one by becoming many. When the one becomes many, think of it yourself. You're in a room by yourself. Well, if you could manifest others, it wouldn't be as full as you because you're manifesting them, but a semblance of you, and you could interact with them. This is the idea. Does that help? Yes, it does, Guru Maharaj. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's, yeah, just a minute left. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like four more questions, but we could save them for next week. Could the fact uh, that Gornitai distributes Madhuri and Saki be proof of the supremacy of of the two rasas. Well, we, Kishore asks, well, we emphasize the fact that they are the prominent um, rasas of Gauti Vaishnavism because Gaur and Nityananda are, are uh, absorbed in Madhurya and Sakya, respectively. Um, um, yes, so if you want to say, 
Grody of Vaishnavism is superior to um, um, the Balaba, Shudadweti uh, Vaishnav school, where Vatsalyas is very, is very central. And you could make a case that um, Sakiras is superior because Gaudiya Vaishnava is superior. But I mean, uh, I think the way in which I answered Gayatri on that is uh, probably a better approach. Um, Haribo, I will ask a question next week. Thank you for the question. Sadvi, oh, my goodness. In, let's see. Uh, can you speak on Balaram? Why Balaram doesn't fight in Kurukshetra if he's a Kshatriya? Why did he not participate in the war? Well, because he was affiliated with Duryodhan. Duryodhan was very, uh, you know, let's say, let's say you, um, you, you, you love someone. Hmm. And you have another friend. Hmm. However, as it turns out, the person that you love doesn't get along with your friend. He sees things in your friend that just are real problematic. Now, you hear that from the one you love, but, you you know, he's your friend. You don't see him in that way. Your interaction with him is different. Hmm. So unless you have the experience that your lover does, it's hard for you to get, you know, on board when when you're, the person you, you love is criticizing that. Yeah, well, you know, you, you're able to find excuses for them and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. So this is very practical, human psychology of love. So uh, Balaram loves Krishna. Hmm. And Duryodhan loves Balaram, but he didn't like Krishna very much. Uh, now, of course, you could say, well, because Balaram only loves Krishna, how can he love Duryodhan if Duryodhan doesn't love Krishna? But this is Leela. So, in uh, Leela, um, Balaram's a little sympathetic to Duryodhan. He's not ultimately for him over Krishna, but he's a little sympathetic. And Duryodhan wanted the war, and, and, and despite all the di- diplomacy, um, that, uh, by which the uh, dispute uh, uh, never was made to resolve the dispute. It uh, it wasn't destined um, to to happen, and, and the war was destined to happen for for other reasons. So Balaram, um, uh, this is part of the reason his affinity for Duryodhan and for Krishna. He loved Lakshmi like both, and he he, he didn't want to get in there and take sides to such an extreme extent of being uh, a warrior and so forth. Um, um, And, of course, beyond that, many things are accomplished in the context of Alila. Balaram is a manifestation of Krishna. So Krishna is, in that sense, you know, not different than Balaram. And he had another purpose to fulfill at the same time, which was the installing of Sutta Goswami on the Vyasasana as the speaker of the Bhagavatam. Mm-hmm. So Balaram went south 
and there he uh, dealt with Ramaharshan and put his son, Ramaharshan was offensive, was a false speaker, if you will, of the Bhagavatam and the Puranas, and he put his son in his place and gave us, gave us the, uh, this way Balaram gave us the Bhagavatam that we have today, Sutta Goswami speaking to the sages of Naimisharanya, just like Nityananda Prabhu gave us Chaitanya Charitamrita by by blessing Krishna Skabharash to go to Vrindavan and there he would find his wealth by, and we have Chaitanya Bhagavad because of Nityananda Prabhu because he told Vrindavan Das in his heart that he should write such a book and so forth. This is his his, his role. So he had it. So so Krishna is now different than Balaram. Krishna had something else to accomplish at the same time. That's a short way answer to think about that. Um, then I see. Um, how do you recommend we, we, we meditate on Julanyatra? Well, Julanyatra is, is meditation is a deep thing. Typically, Julanyatra is celebrated by putting Radha and Krishna on a swing and having a festival. So um, if you were to meditate, you'd meditate on internally on that festival and the Leela descriptions of that. And in the context of that meditation, see yourself as a, as a participant relative to you. Do your rasa, but that's not so easy to do. So, therefore, externally, festivals are created. Radha and Krishna are put on swing, flowers are offered, kirtan is sung, and so forth. What this is is a picture, external picture through our senses that 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 uh, it corresponds to some extent to the internal meditative experience of that world and that realm and that particular lila. So, some acharyas, we see, we have another question. Some acharyas of other paribar think we should have only one Diksha guru and take Harinam and Gayatri from him. We see that our lineage does not think so because Bhaktisiddhanta Prabhupada had two gurus. But do you think we should designate one of them as priority and think of him as the main one? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, first of all, I don't think um, that um, Chaitanya Charitamrita states that Harinam is independent of Diksha. Mm-hmm. Um, Harinam, the name of Hari is non-different from Krishna himself. So he can enlighten anyone independent of Diksha. Still, what he has recommended is that we accept Diksha and the mantra. And, and by honoring the Guru, then we are, in a, we are in a position to take advantage of the holy name of Hari. So um, there's a, a good case that can be made that Harinam doesn't require Diksha. Hmm? But if we were to take advantage of Harinam, we should accept Diksha hmm? and the mantra. Now, previously I talked about having the blessing of a devotee to chant, and, and, and we should, and, and, and so on and so forth. But um, uh, there is a distinction made between diksha 
in Nam, Nam Kirtan. People do Nam Kirtan without Diksha. Um, so, um, with regard, so I, I, I don't think there's much of a, uh, a case that can be made that one should, one must accept Diksha and Harinam from the same person. Typically, that's going to be the case, but there are other instances in which, for example, one accepts Harinam, the blessing, let's say, to chant the holy name from a guru, and later accepts Diksha from another guru because that guru has passed away. What, what are you going to do then? Um, so there's, there's, there's no like hard and fast rule, scriptural rule, that whoever, whatever guru gives you the blessing, his blessing or her blessing to chant the holy name, under his or her auspices, must be the guru that you accept diksha from. There's no, there's no rule like that. So people could say whatever they want, but there's, there's no rule like that. And we, we give a practical example. What if the, what that guru who gives you harinam or that blessing departs, then we, then you can't take diksha from anybody because he's, she's not there. No. Um, and also, the explanation of Chaitanya Charitamrita is that while the Diksha Guru should be one, Siksha Guru may be a plural. Because hmm? one person gives you the mantra, but you could take Siksha from others. So in the case of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, he took Diksha from one person and he took Harinam from, I mean, he, I mean, he had the blessing of Bhakti Vinod to chant Harinam. Hmm? But it's not that he didn't have the blessing to chant Harinam from, from Gorkashar Das Babaji Maharaj. Hmm. Um, it's like if you say, well, you know, my father was a pure Vaishnava, lived in his home, you know, he chanted Hare Krishna from my whole life, but he told me to take Diksha from so and so. Does that mean that that's a problem? No, it's not at all. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, the idea of taking Harinam initiation, I, I don't, but Gorkishore Das Babaji, for that matter, told Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur that you will realize your swarup in the syllables of the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. Hmm. So even though he was chanting Hare Krishna prior to meeting his Gorkishore Das Babaji, you could say Gorkishore Das Babaji gave him Harinam as well. I can make that argument if need be. Um, but the question is, um, do you think we should designate one of them gurus as priority and think of him as the main one? I, I don't think so. I think that they're, they're both equally important. Um, um, one time, one of my godbrothers who had taken sannyas from Pujapatridamar set up an altar. And in the altar, he didn't put Gorkashore Das Babaji's picture there because Shidamarsh, Pujapat Shidamarsh, Guru Marsh had been teaching or emphasizing um, that the way in which Bhakti Siddhanta configured the Guru Parampara was in terms of substantial contributors. Not that others weren't computers, but they were substantial. Just like in science, if you want to make a line, you know, from the, you know centuries ago to today, you can't name every pop, every every scientist. But you're going to name the Newtons, you know, 
Copernicus, whatever, Newton, uh, Einstein, you know, the, the ones that really stand out and have made major contributions. They're all good. They're all bona fide. But uh, so he drew a line uh, like that. And um, in some cases, there was an emphasis on a Siksha guru of someone. Like, for example, in the case of Bhakti Vinod, who was initiated by Vidyabhari Goswami, Bhakti Siddhanta reasoned the world. We see things in Bhakti Vinod that weren't in Vidyabhari Goswami, but they were in, in Jagannathas Babaji, who was a Siksha guru. So we'll draw the line to, um, without disregarding Vidyabhari Goswami, we draw the line to um, a more significant, substantial contributor. So anyway, um, my Gabbarder reasoned, well, you know, what was the contribution of Gorkashore anyway? So he took him off the altar. But when Shudamarsh heard that, he was, became furious. He said, and, and, and then the disciple humbly asked, well, what was the contribution of Gorkashore? And then, but Shudamarsh replied, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. That was his contribution. So, uh, uh, but practically speaking, you know, it, it's, it's a fact that Bhakti Siddhanta Sastri Thakur uh, dedicated his life to carrying out the, the mission that was conceived of by Bhakti Vinod Thakur to spread Krishna consciousness around the world. I mean, Bhakti, Bhakti, Gurkhashortam, don't bother with the preaching, it's just going to get in the way, do bhajan. And Bhakti Vinod said, do, you got to go and preach. And so, um, what to do? He had two gurus. But he honored them both equally. We honor them equally. They have different, they've made different contributions. They were moved by Bhagavan in different ways to contribute. So, um, but Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthitaku did tell us to identify ourselves as members of the Bhakti Binod Paribar. Bhakti Vinod was connected to the Nityananda Paribar and Gorkashore to the Advaita Paribar. So in one sense, there's some maybe some emphasis on the Nityananda Paribar. But as conceived of by Bhakti Vinod, I mean, he, he's starting it with Bhakti Vinod. So those are some thoughts on that. I hope that's helpful. I see a long question here. Today's Can world... I quickly ask a follow-up first? Yeah. Um, so in our parivar, would you then say that it's not necessarily so that diksha is like the more important initiation? I'm just asking this in terms of what you just said or said earlier. That well, there's different ways to think about that. Um, and what's the most important guru? If you have more than one, well, Pujapadshidamarsh gave the answer: the one that helps you the most is the most important guru. <laughs> It is not based on the formalities, but whoever helps you the most, whoever you feel is the, is, 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 is the most significant uh, spiritual figure in your life. That's the most important guru, if you have more than one, a plurality of gurus. Um, so there you go. Um, but um, he made the case that when some of Prabhupada's disciples who had received Harinam from Prabhupada, but he passed away, were then in a position to take initiation, set mantra diksha from one of their godbrothers. So, in this case, Sridhar Marsh made the case that Harinam is more important than Mantra because Chaitanya Charitamrita says that by Mantra you can get free from samsara and by Gnam you can attain the feet of Krishna. 
So the mantra retires at a certain point in terms of its efficacy, and Harinam continues on. Mm-hmm. So he made the case like that. Now you can make an opposite case that Diksha is more important because without the Diksha, for more, more all intents and purposes, the vast majority of people are not going to be able to fully take advantage of Harinam. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's more important. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions to that. That's 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 um, that's the norm, and that's the norm that's mentioned and underscored in Bhakti Sandarbha. But, but it's not necessarily the case. There can be exceptional persons, like a Bhakti Vinod, for example. Uh, yes. Yeah, it really struck me. I never thought of it before, but the fact that we get an initiated like name during the uh, Hari initiation is really substantial, actually, because that's supposed to signify that we're like a new person, right? And I never thought of it, but that's like unusual because other lineages don't give the Harinam initiation. Yeah, some do, some don't, yeah. So um, we have a question, one more question here that I can see. Um, everywhere, it's so much easier to connect and compete with people. Krishna consciousness is also relatively easy to become a popular person online. This also applies to devotees who try to preach Krishna Bhakti. It seems to me that many that it may become sometimes difficult to have some discrimination. And we may sometimes mistake a real spiritual standing with the Christian. Let's take that one next week. It's a bit long even to read out. Um, we're all already a little bit, quite a bit over time. So thank you all. Thank you very much. For, chance to, for engaging me on this Sunday. And I hope to see you next week as well. Libo. Libo.